Somebody, somebody's Bible, Brother Larry, is this yours? For those of you that are visiting with us, uh, we have the sound booth upstairs, and Brother Larry and Brother Robert and Brother Daniel, they interpret all of our services into Spanish for people that are seated up there in that section with earphones on. And it, the sermon is recorded, and that's the sermons of mine that they're talking about taking down there. And uh, Brother Branham has a, has a tape entitled, Faith is a Sixth Sense. And uh, Brother Murray from New Zealand came over here a few years ago, and he, he really preached that sermon, and he, he challenged us all about it. So Brother Branham talks about going in and seeing a little girl that's sick, and he's talking to her about faith, and, and he showed her a little thing hanging from the roof and from the light, and... And he moved it and made it go in the other direction. And people say, oh, well, that's some kind of witchcraft or something. No, Brother Bram said, that's the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that if you have faith, you can move a mountain. It may be one grain at a time, but he did that to demonstrate that. And then Brother Bram talked about uh, uh, losing his pocket knife. And just by faith, he said where it was going to be. And I don't know, that night that just began to speak to my heart and uh, there's been some wonderful incidents that's happened. Uh, one of them is my mother had lost something, and it was really troubling her. And one day I went to her house, and she told me about it. And I says, well, Mother, we're just going to put it right over there behind that dresser. And I'm going to go over there and get down and get it. And I just walked over and run my hand behind the dresser and come out of there with it. Well, you can imagine that was the, the faith, you know. Well, after that, my mother felt like anything I said was right, you know. Uh, but... But I just, it, it was God's goodness to me, just helping me with my mother. And then another one we tell is Brother uh, Ron Peterson and his wife Sandy. They had worked in Europe for about seven years for the spoken word and the voice of God. And when they got ready and uh, left over there and came home, the believers over there gave them a nice offering of about 5000 American dollars. And they came uh, to uh, Phoenix, and then they came down here and were in services with us. And the church up at Canistano, Canada, uh, had invited them to come and try out for the pastorship. And I didn't know they had this $5,000. Uh, but we, uh, we financed their tickets for them, for, for Brother Peterson and Sandy and the children, because I said, if you're going to go and involve your family, everybody needs to go. Uh, I knew the congregation up well enough to know that if they accept you, they'll refund the, me the money on the tickets. So they did go. They cost about $2,400, and they they flew up there, and the church accepted them. And so they came back to Phoenix, making preparation to move up to Canada. And while they were there, the brothers told them, says, well, one of the best things that you could do, Brother Ron, is, is buy yourself a new car in America, because up here cars are so expensive. So they went to, to try out for all the cars, and they went over to the Oldsmobile place, and they found one they liked, and uh, the man let them take it home, and uh, they decided they would take it, and they looked in Brother Ron's briefcase for the balance of that $5,000 offering, which was down to about $3,800, and it was not there. And he called me on the phone and said, Brother Green, he said, we just don't know what happened. He said, I I'm calling you because... Do you think it's possible that... He said, that briefcase has not been out of my possession. He said, since I, I, I just watch it everywhere. He said, the only time it was out of my possession is when I came through the security at the U.S. Customs coming back in here. 
He said, there for a while they were checking me for my pockets and my briefcase was over there and the customs agent had it open. He said, have you ever heard of a case to where they they would have taken something out? And I said, well, how was it? He said, well, it was in cash and it was in an envelope. I said, well, was the envelope sealed? He said, no, the end was torn off of it. And I, my, you know, my heart just... You know, I just felt so bad. I mean, it, it depended on them having that money to buy that car. And uh, yeah, you could tell that he was heartbroken. And I says, well, Brother Ron, I said, look, if it wasn't stolen, then then let's just have faith that you'll find it. And he said, Brother, where am I going to look for it? And when he said that, he sort of triggered in my heart and mind what I had said and taught and would believe. And I said, Brother Ron, you and your wife pray about it. And then y'all just put that money where you want it to be and go there and that envelope will be there. Well, my lens, he did something that was so ridiculous that that I, I just, after I heard about it, my knees just trembled. He and her agreed that it would be in the glove compartment of the new car. Of all places, I mean, how, when, where, why would it be in the... I, I'd have said her suitcase or her clothes or his his pocket or, you know, in his Bible or somewhere. But to put it in the glove compartment of the new car. And they went outside and opened it up and there was the envelope. So when, when we have testified of that and we repeated it, then this brother had lost... You know, a million three hundred thousand pesos. That's a lot of money to those people. And, and they had looked. And they did not find it. And as a result, the man lowered the rent. For two years. And then when they, by, by faith, they put it there. And they don't express their doubt by running and looking right away and they don't play a Ouija game with it they just believe it and go there and there it is I think it's just God allowing us to know that folks we have great faith we think sometimes well God don't do anything for us but I'll tell you it says if you believe and doubt not all things are possible Now, if you start playing games with this, then you make a mockery out of it. But when there's a necessity, I want you to know, folks, that, that all of heaven stands behind you. If you, if you have a shadow of, of the Spirit of God in you, He's Almighty God. Just a shadow of Him, you can create a world. How much of God does it take to change things? I've said for years, I believe we live below our privileges. Because we, somebody says, oh Lord, give me faith. No, he said, use the faith you've got. Do you believe that all things are possible? Tell me something that, uh, that, that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He cannot forget his own. 
He cannot break his own word. Well, none of those are negatives. They're all positives. And tonight I believe God. I believe God. And I'll have to say this, that I haven't always been able to, to say it with the assurance that I have now. Because there's times when I've had some questions. But I'll tell you this, I've, I've served the Lord long enough now. A lot of times when people come to me and they have a problem or a difficulty or there's, there's a, a, an objective in their life or, or, or there's confusion or there's a, a wave or a tempest or a storm or a, or a wind blowing. Sometimes if I'm not careful, I, I, I seem to make, make it too small. But after you've served the Lord and seen it and had some experience and some exposure, you know what God will do. Then you just learn to stand still. You don't have to be excited about it. You don't have to shake God. Just remember what God said and think on these things. And watch God bring it to pass. I think it's like the... I told the congregation the other night when I was 32 years old and Brother Branham was involved in the accident that week. And I was in Amarillo with Brother Billy and Sister Lois. And there was about 65 ministers there. The deacons the other night thanked me publicly for taking over. Well, you know, it wasn't appreciated then. I mean, for years I, I, I took the criticism, but you know, when you look back, and, and let, let me just let me just tell you why I felt the way I did then. God let me see this then. If that was brother, if brother Branham was God's prophet, the devil didn't have anything to do with that. Satan was not going to win a victory. And I, I just saw right away that that John the Baptist, none born of woman any greater. And what a horrible death he died, decapitated. His head put on a platter and displayed publicly. The devil didn't do that. God showed us all that once God's servants have finished their course. He just got away from to get out of here. When they came in and asked about giving the doctor permission to uh, relieve the pressure on Brother Bram's brain, they, I mean, there was all kinds of advice and controversy. They're just trying to kill him. I even heard one say, the doctor's probably a Roman Catholic. I just, I shuddered. I remembered Brother Branham said, if you're going to go to the hospital, go to the best one. And he said, the Catholic Church has got the best ones. There's some people so afraid to go to a Catholic hospital because some priest might walk in and sprinkle some holy water on them or one of their children. What does that have to do with it? It's like Paul said, eating meat offered to an idol. 
laying that steak on a slab of meat in front of a hunk of stone don't change the delicious taste of it. The only thing that affects it is somebody says, Oh, that's been offered to an idol, and I'd be offended if you ate that. Well, then just eat it in secret and don't let him know you ate it. That's what Paul said. If eating the meat offends your brother, then don't eat it in front of him. Take it home and cook it in private in the backyard. Have you ever looked at it that way, or, is that, or am I way off base here with this tonight? Just think for a moment what we can think. Well, laying a piece of meat on this, on this slab here in front of this stone is not going to change the molecules of the meat. Just take it and enjoy it. I know when the folks went over to Israel, the rabbi used to, uh, you know, he'd slaughter the chickens for the kosher people. And they take and they, they hold him up and he's got a knife. And I mean, it's sharper than any razor blade you ever saw. And he just cuts the head off of that chicken that hangs up there, you know. And, and the, the blood drains out of it. And then when they open that chicken up, if there's any blood left in the lungs... It's not kosher. So, Brother Johnson, when y'all first went to Israel, y'all used to get a lot of chicken from over there at the hospital. I mean, they, you remember the cinnamon is shaking their head. Chicken, chickens, chickens, right. They couldn't eat them, so they gave them to Ugoyas. <laughs> well, we, we've eaten the lights all of our lives, you know, the lungs of them. And it, it didn't matter, but that was their law. Now, it's, it's the same way whenever they came in and asked Brother Billy Paul, for permission to operate on Brother Branham. And I looked at it, and I, I finally took Billy aside with Brother Borders, and I said, Brother Billy, God knows that's his prophet. God also knows you're his son. And you cannot, will not make a mistake. I can't give the permission. No other brother can give the permission. Billy, you are the only person who can sign that or refuse it. So do whatever is in your heart. He signed it and they did it. They did not find any pressure. You see, uh, it was just Brother Branham's time to go. And why did God have to take him? I mean, I've been asked this all over the world ever since that day happened. And you'll hear me talk about this on this tape tonight. If Brother Branham was still here, how old would he be this week? Or this coming April? His birthday, April the 6th, 1995. He's born in 06. Huh? 09. April the 6th, 1909. 80. 86 years old. But instead, he left us at 57. Brother Ram would probably still be preaching. He'd probably still be healthy. He had the metabolism of a 16-year-old over there at the hospital. They checked his blood pressure. They thought it was low, but I called here and checked with the doctor here that had examined him here, and that was his normal blood pressure. They thought it was low, but Brother Ram was just in that good a physical condition. But when God took Brother Branham, we all wondered, 
what now? What next? There was a lot of speculation. But there was one thing I knew. I knew that God had sent me here. And I feel that he had showed me beforehand. And I said this to my mother once and to my sister Sammy once before I moved here. You see, come in the first of November, they want to know, Perry, why don't you wait until after the end of the year and you've, you've closed your businesses out and you've done your income taxes, then you can go in January. What's your hurry now? And I made this statement to my mother without even thinking about it. And later to my sister when she asked me, I said, God forbid that anything would happen to Brother Branham. But if it did, and there's not a church in Tucson, there'd be several hundred people that won't know what to do in Arizona. And five Sundays later, it happened. When I heard of Brother Brown's accident, I went to Amarillo. I, I went to I, I went there. I'll tell you, it's a tape. I'll tell you how. I was there the six days. When I got there, I disciplined myself. The phone was ringing. I had phones, special phones, two lines put into the hall outside the waiting room for the telephone company. It took me a day to get that done. I was accustomed to doing that because that time I was having the telephone hookup wherever I went. I saw that there were people there during the day, so I purposed that every day from 9 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon, I would go to the motel and sleep. I would get about five and a half hours sleep. I would take a hot bath. And back I would, I would take it when I got over there and I'd go to bed and I'd get up. And by three, or three o'clock I'd be back taking care of the phones. There was 25 or 30 people there all the other time. About the time I'd get there, people would leave, start going to leave to go to supper. By about 11 o'clock at night, everybody would be going to bed and I'd be sitting in the waiting room alone. My dad, uh, I remember one time, mother was in the hospital and dad wanted to take us kids in and all he had to do was to take the nurses a box of candy. And we went right into the hospital. That's when they wouldn't let kids under 12 go to the hospital. And I just, every day when I went back, I just took a box of candy and set it on the nurse's station. Never said a word, walked right on past, went in the waiting room. And the first night that I was there by myself, the lady came out and asked me if I wanted to go in and see Reverend Branham. I put on the gown, I'd go around through the nurse's station, and I spent hours standing at the foot of Brother Brown's bed looking at him. He never said anything. He never responded. He never told me anything. That's the reason I say if you hear anybody else say they went in there and Brother Branham gave them some special instruction or something, which I have heard people say, I want you to know there is no truth to it. Everybody that went into that room, I got them permission to go. Some went in there and created a disturbance and they, they forbid us to go in to visit Brother Branham at all. I had to go get special permission from the superintendent of the hospital 
and personally guarantee him that nobody would go in there except Brother Bradham's family. And then every time somebody came and wanted to go, Brother Billy Paul would ask me, and I would go and ask the superintendent of the hospital if they could go. And the only way they could go is if I stood and watched them while they were there. And uh, there's two groups that went in there that came out that are telling even today that Brother Branham gave them special instructions and so forth. I want you to know Brother Branham wasn't even aware they were there. He was unconscious. Just as I spent hours there watching. I took his body back to Jeffersonville. And tonight you'll hear me tell the first time that I came back here. January the 2nd, 1966. Tell the congregation what had happened those two weeks. It's me, it's not Brother Branham, so I'm not going to have you sing Only Believe. Our announcements this week will be Sunday, I mean, Wednesday evening service will be at 7.30 here in the Tabernacle. The next Sunday morning, there'll be a change in the time of the morning service. Instead of 9.30, it will be 10.30. This will be our regular time of Sunday morning service. That way, instead of getting out at 11 or a little after, we'll get out a little after noon, which will give you ladies with children a little bit more time to prepare and come to service since we're having one service. <coughs> then our Sunday evening service is normally 7 o'clock, as it has been this evening. We appreciate all of your faithfulness in being here tonight. I realize that there are some from out of the city, for they have called and said that they had heard the announcement of what I was going to speak concerning tonight, and they had come specifically for this purpose to be here this evening. This makes me to know and to feel a position of caution and responsibility at the present time. Because I have been as close to the situation these past two weeks as I have, I have received many calls, many letters of inquiry or telegrams, people saying, now what? This seems to be the question. Well, I feel that for the first time we may possibly know more reasonably sure how the disciples felt after the crucifixion. And if there should be a longing in our hearts this evening, mine is, is that even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, I am like the average one of you, maybe lesser than some of you, for I am newer to this message than many of you. For I can only claim two years' seniority at the present time which would have to be just about this time, two years ago, I first realized that there was a prophet spoken in Malachi 4 that was to be on the scene before the coming of the Lord. I had known this prophet personally for a number of years, but I had known him only as an evangelist. One that had always held a great place of admiration and of honor in my life, and I had use his life and his ministry and his testimony as evidence of many of the things that I had spoken from the scriptures to my local churches where I had pastored. 
but I did not realize that it had such magnitude that I came to realize about this time two years ago before he came to our city for a meeting. Since then, my life has been entirely different, and it was my desire Sunday two weeks ago, which would have been December the 19th. I, I think that on Wednesday night I had announced that I was going to speak concerning the things that this family and this man in particular had the influence that had exercised itself upon my life since the revelation had come to me. So that will be delayed for one week until a week from tonight, the Lord willing. At that time I did not know that this particular chapter which I'm going to speak tonight was going to be present. I am happy to put this on tape tonight for I have been asked these many questions by from many pastors of churches since I was as close to the situation as I was, and I would like to record it while it is fresh in my memory, the complete story of the past two weeks, what I have seen and borne witness of myself, so that later, if it becomes expedient, that we can transcribe it from this tape, and possibly I would like to write a small book about it. I have asked many of those who have been with us this week as we have gone through the procedure that we have operated under, that they too would speak there, that it would be recorded while it was fresh in their memory, and we would not forget one single detail of it. And last Sunday morning, I was in Jeffersonville in Branham Tabernacle. Brother Neville called upon me prior to service and asked that if I would give the membership there a comprehensive analysis of what I personally had seen. I spoke from Saturday night two weeks ago, December the 18th, through last Sunday morning on tape at Bantam Tabernacle last week, and already several copies of that tape have even been sent overseas, simply for the information that it contains. Now, this one has also been requested to be sent so we are making a copy of it tonight, and we'll, it will be available to whoever desires to have an interest in it. I would like to begin these remarks tonight by reading Psalm 55, verses 1 through 7, which Brother Branham read to the congregation and to those listening on the telephone, and you may hear it on tape, Sunday night after Thanksgiving in Shreveport, Louisiana. This was his text. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me, I mourn in my complaint, and make a noise. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, but I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. 
Oh, then I, would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. For those of you who knew Brother Branham the way that most of us did, he knew that there was one thing that he always spoke about concerning himself physically, and that was a nervousness. All of his life, approximately ever seven years it had come upon him. He was 56. Seven times eight, 56. He had read this, and he made the remarks, and you may hear it on tape, on the wings of a dove. When he read this, we did not pay nor observe it as we can observe it now. But if there was anything that he told us was that he had peace because God had sent him a dove. But did we notice that it mentioned in here, my heart is sore pained within me and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. If you will go back to the vision, sirs, what is the time? In 1962, when God showed him the vision of the explosion and sent him out west, by those series of dreams, and by the driving of that stake in the front of his house, which the road is now widened in front of his home in Jeffersonville. When these things came to pass, he told us many times that I came expecting to be killed. He had had this burden upon his heart. He had said himself that he was nervous, even to the time after that God had revealed the seals to him, there was still this burden upon him. I have heard him say many times with these ears, I did not purchase this home for myself, but rather I bought it in case something happens to me, the family would have a place to live. You have heard him make these remarks if you've been around him. But when he said them, we did not realize what he was saying. If we will go and understand that the Lord had witnessed and shown him this, naturally, if you knew there was going to be this tragedy or something similar to it in your life, you too would be nervous. But what peace you would feel if God were to send that dove unto you as he did to Brother Branham in the wilderness. When you listen to the tape, Snow White Dove, I feel that you'll understand better. Some have asked me the question, did he know this? I feel that he did. For many statements which he made, which are only a few that I can recall personally or have since been able to review from his sermons, especially the sermon entitled Easter Seal, April the 10th, 1965, preached in Phoenix, Arizona. Speaking of the resurrection and the anointing, he spoke and said, The anointing will never leave my bones. You may burn me, bury me in the sea, place me anywhere you please, but the anointing will never leave my bones. And he compared it with the prophet. And he talked about the resurrection, and he said, When Christ died, I died with him. When he arose, I arose with him. And he said, I have been resurrected. It's a lovely taste to watch and listen now in the light of all the events that have now taken place. And then Easter, April the 18th, from Jeffersonville, the rising of the sun. I think the church here heard that one last week together. Part of it on Sunday morning and the remainder of that night. 
Very fitting now we remember that he spoke these things. Just as I said this morning, the disciples remembered after Jesus had been crucified. They said, remember he said, remember when he told us, remember when he showed us this, remember when he spoke this parable, this will be taking place in our lives for months to come. I would say until the end of time, until the rapture takes place. Will I be remembering things that I have been spoken to me that I did not perceive when it was spoken unto me? I can even at this day pick up the book, The Seven Church Ages, which has just been released from the press, but was, was spoken from the pulpit years ago. And I found things in the first hundred pages that I had never heard on a page. Why? Because it is fresh. It was just been written. It had just been edited. It had just been handed as thus saith the Lord for the word. For the church ages revealed unto us as they were. We will begin the activities of these weeks in San Bernardino or in Rialto, California. That is the evening that he spoke the sermon, Things That Are To Be. I was not there. I was here that evening preaching from my notes that he had spoken on the rapture Saturday night in Yuma. But some of you were here when I spoke about the rapture, and you know the things that he said were to happen at that time. And he said that nothing was done, God doeth nothing, until he first reveals it to his prophets. Amos 3, 7. This to me gave what he said concerning the rapture an emphasis that we should pay attention to what he said. This tape as of yet has not been released, but I understand that it will be in the near future. You may obtain it from the regular channel of tape. But in Rialto, that evening when he spoke things that are to be, he made this statement concerning death. Aren't you glad there's such a thing as death? Death is a door. It's an escape from this test house. When I come to face it, I don't want to be a coward. Can you understand what he said? If it's if it were to be revealed to you that you were going to be taken from this life, would you face it bravely or would you be a coward? I feel that here was an honest confession by our brother. And he was saying, I don't want to be a coward. And because God had sent him the dove, he was not a coward. He knew that all would be well. For God had sent him a sign from above on the wings of a dove. He spoke this to us publicly, but we did not perceive it nor understand it in that day. He said, Jesus stands in that door, and I want to walk up to it and wrap myself in his robes of righteousness. He is, not mine, he said, speaking of Jesus. And walk in there and have fellowship with those. And he said, then, I know that when the resurrection takes place, I'll come out from among the dead and I'll dwell with those eternally. He said, we have preached it, and we believe it. He included us in it when he said it. And the next evening, I was able to be in San Bernardino, and those of you who were there or have heard the tape, if you will observe his closing prayer, he prayed and said, I could be killed in an automobile accident. He said it. Whether that's what he meant or not, I will not say, thus saith the Lord, but he said it. The following evening, which was Tuesday, in Covina, California. For some reason unknown to myself, I was invited to sit on the platform that evening. And I sat next to Billy, and his father sat just to the right of him, and I had a copy of the new book 
and we discussed some of the things that was mentioned in the book that were not mentioned on tape prior to this. And I was given a, an understanding of these things. I did not mention to him that I questioned them, but he brought them up because I did question them because he knew they were upon my heart. And this has always been the case with Brother Branham and myself. I have never had to ask him a question. He has always perceived my question and then explained it to me if I needed an answer. I'll mention a few of these things tonight that have happened in the last two weeks that he spoke to me privately the two times he was in service here. But that evening when he preached, he preached leadership. And certainly if there's one we should remember, it's to follow him as he followed Christ. But he did something very strange that night that I observed and made mention to Brother Fred Sothman and to Brother Roy Borders and to several of the others, but these two I remember in particular. When he finished preaching that night in Covina, he sang, Till We Meet, to a full gospel businessman's group. And to my knowledge, I had never heard him sing at any place except the tabernacle in Jeffersonville. To me, this struck me as rather peculiar, and immediately I said, is he telling California goodbye? Because he had mentioned the California prophecy. But as he began to leave the platform, as he approached where he was to step down and go outside, the platform was about 14 or 15 inches high. Standing on it with both feet, he started to step down with his right foot, but he put it back up and he stood on the edge of that platform and waved to that congregation after someone else had taken charge of the service. When I saw it, it struck my heart and I said, California, goodbye. But I now know it meant something else. That was his last sermon spoken to the world as a sermon. We see it now, but we didn't then. But he spoke it and he waved goodbye. He came home on Wednesday, Thursday, it was raining, the weather was bad. For some strange reason, he had been so passive concerning the house up in the foothills and its completion. But he got up Thursday morning and insisted on Sister Branham and Becky going with him to Phoenix and Sister Branham did not she had something else that she needed to do in to get order to get ready to go to Jeffersonville the next week. On Thursday, he and Becky went to Phoenix and in a matter of hours furnished the new house. Next time I saw him was Sunday. When he mentioned to me that if we were going to have communion, he said, I would like to assist. I said it would be my pleasure. And may I straighten a misunderstanding out here in the local congregation. It has been brought to my attention from a remark that I made the first time Brother Branham ever attended the church, that I would give him five minutes. I have never placed a limit on Brother Branham. I said this in saying to him because he had asked for five minutes. He alone knew what I meant. And I spoke it for his benefit because... Personally, he would never have fulfilled filled his pulpit by the hour as much as I desired him in my heart. But I had an understanding with him privately that I would never insist upon him as much as coming to the platform, lest 
he feel that he had to come each time and minister unto the people. It was my heart's desire for him to do it. But I wanted him to feel at liberty to do how he felt led, and he did Sunday night. When he came, he sat back there. And he had asked me if he could help me serve communion, and I told him he could have the pulpit for the whole service. He said, no, you preach. When the crowd began to gather, he was the first one to get up and come to the platform voluntarily. I never asked him. That thrilled me when he did it voluntarily. I wanted him here all the while, but I wanted him to feel that he wanted to do it within himself. I'm sorry if I've been misunderstood in this. But this was the understanding that I had with Brother Brandon. If, if you knew how I felt standing here preaching to you people that have heard him preach for years, the, the, the fear that's in me now, even that I may say something that you would differ with, certainly then you would sympathize with me and pray for me when I had to preach to him sitting here. It was not my desire to tell him or you either anything. My desire has always been to remind you of the things that he has said and that Paul wrote us and that Jesus spoke himself that we might be a good minister unto the Lord Jesus. I think the first time he spoke here, he made that very clear, that I had an understanding with him. I don't get the revelations from heaven above. That's left up to the prophets. But I can hear them, and he has told me a number of times, Brother Perry, you have a good balance of the scriptures, and you have a good conception of the things which I speak. In fact, the evening in Jeffersonville when he spoke, or the morning, doing God a service without his will, and he, he had learned that I had a desire to come here and do something in order that these people in Tucson might have a place to worship. He said, Brother Perry, the people in Tucson need to know what I meant when I said doing God a service without his will. He said, you can tell him. And I looked at him with a blank look on my face and said to myself, I said, I wonder if I know what he meant. But he told me to tell you people what he meant. And I think I have a few times. There were things that some of us were doing and were tearing his heart out, doing God a service without his will. Thinking we were being a help when we were being a hindrance. And one of these things was being so natural in the revelation and not being spiritual in it and not washing one another's feet in servitude. But running a popularity contest with one another, seeing who could get the closest to him, that's all over with now. Now we've got to look unto that one that he's pointed us to all the while. Now we'll see who really genuinely believes the message. We've been accused by the world of following a man. Now we've got a message to follow. We could be like a bunch of geese, though, without a leader, and do this. But God help us all to sit on the pond until God shows us which direction to go. And if there's anything we need to do, it's review all those things, lest we miss something that was spoken to us that was essential unto our salvation. When he came that evening and he served communion, it was beautiful. Beautiful. I spoke that evening on God is never late in the fullness of times and I talked about the baby Jehovah, Emmanuel, in a man's arms. He mentioned this after service. How marvelous it is to imagine God in the flesh dwelling among us. 
But if you remember when he served communion tonight, he was so particular with every tray. And I shall never forget that moment when we stood right here and he took his and then gave me mine. That's the last thing he did publicly. That tape is available. It'll be treasured by the family and by all of us until the rapture takes place. Those words that he spoke that evening. But look at the type. The last thing Jesus did was serve the Last Supper. On Wednesday evening we had foot washing. He did not attend service. They were due to leave here on Friday. Billy and Lois both were sick. So it was Saturday morning before they left. Saturday, the weather was bad here, and I sat leisurely around the house most of the day and was preparing to make a trip to Modesto, California, Monday morning to return the show calf which we have had for the last year for Eddie to the ranch in California, to his father's home. Becky and George had mentioned to us earlier in the week that they would come out Saturday evening and be with us. So Saturday night they were there and they were at our home when the accident occurred. Becky and George left and upon them going out the back door I received a phone call looking for Becky to inform her of the accident. Immediately upon my hearing it I had one desire in my heart and that was to go to Billy. Because I knew that if it had been minor or major, he needed somebody's help. Because as word spread, the exact thing we figured would happen did happen. Hundreds of calls and messages and somebody had to be able to communicate and to keep down rumors. I immediately called the airport while my wife was packing my suitcase. And it was about 10.30 and I found that there was a plane leaving at 11.37 that I could go to Phoenix, and from Phoenix to Albuquerque, and from Albuquerque to Amarillo. I had been told that it happened at Amarillo, and that's where I was headed. I was scheduled to be there at 8.49 by airline. I made reservations for myself and for Becky. I left the house alone, went by Billy's house in order to pick up Becky if she desired to go with me. Brother Collins had contacted Becky, and Becky knew at that time of the accident, but did not know how serious it was. And she decided that she would remain here until Bubba, as she called Billy, had called her again. I went to the airport, and when I arrived there, there was a jet sitting on the ground. I walked directly onto it without a ticket. I purchased my ticket on the plane into Phoenix, and when I got to Phoenix, I walked directly off of the American Airlines, went right straight through the gate, walked on a TWA jet, without a ticket and went to Amarillo or Albuquerque I purchased my ticket on the plane when I arrived in Albuquerque I was due to have a six hour layover until the next morning when I was a plane I began to seek and search and in the meantime I had called my wife from this airport and she had told me that brother Roberson had a report so I had called brother Roberson brother Roberson had said these were his exact words, Brother Perry, it's not good, he's bad. I called my wife immediately, 
I had just enough time to repeat the words. I said, honey, it's not good. He's bad. She said, I can't believe it. I said, well, it's so. I thought she meant, I can't believe they've been in an accident. But she misunderstood me and thought I said, he's dead. And the first rumor that was started, I started it. And that was the very thing I had a desire in my heart not to do and to put a stop to. She called my father, she called Brother Roy Borders, and she called Brother Lee Vail. Brother Roberson, being in his home while I was flying from here to Phoenix, got a feeling. And he said, I feel that Brother Perry misunderstood me. But he said he couldn't have possibly called anybody except his wife. So he called my wife and said, Sister Janice, did Brother Perry tell you that Brother Branham was dead? And she said, yes, he did. Thinking that Brother Roberson was calling her to confirm what I had said or to inform her. And he said, no, Brother Perry misunderstood me. He's bad. So she called these people that she had called and corrected it. But the word was out. Many people heard it. They approached me the next day and said, why did you start such a lie? I was glad they had that attitude. That's the same attitude I would have had if somebody had called me and said it. I said, I don't believe it. But it was a misunderstanding of communication on the telephone. When I arrived at Albuquerque, there was no plane, there was no rent-a-car. I had in the meantime found out that they were at Freona, Texas, which was about 70 miles this side of Amarillo toward Albuquerque. I was four hours away by car, and instead of a six-hour layover and going to Amarillo, I was trying to obtain a car so that I could drive. But it was not the will of the Lord for me to drive. It was his desire for me to fly so that my eyes could see what I saw. And as I was more or less turning the airport upside down to find a car to drive in, I asked a man, he said, I don't rent cars, but he said, I've got an airplane. And I said, do you rent it? He said, I'm an air taxi. I said, let's go. We went out and we flew in a single engine plane. And the man who flew me was one of the 70 elders of the Mormon church, Mr. Ed Mom. He is not a high priest in the Mormon church, but he's one of the 70 next to the high priest, like the high priest in the Old Testament with Moses and Aaron. But then there was the 70 elders underneath them. That's the way their church government is set up. As we took off in the plane, going to Clovis, New Mexico, which was 25 miles this side of Friona, but it was the nearest lighted airport we could land at. There, I had phoned and asked the sheriff to meet me and pick me up and take me to Friona, 25 miles away. We were no more than airborne and I saw the moon coming up over the horizon. It was black. I could just tell it was the moon against the light of the sun that I could see on the other side. And as it came up, I thought it was all going to be black. Normally, to me, when there's one sixteenth of a moon, it hangs to the side. But on the morning of December the 19th, the night the accident happened, which was December the 18th, when the moon came up, the light was hanging like this at the very bottom of the moon.
and it was as red as any of these red coats that these ladies have on in here tonight. It looked like blood. And it looked as though it were going to drop, or maybe I should say drip, completely off of the moon, like a teardrop. But it was shaped just the like a rim around the bottom of the moon. Then there were two stars that fell from the heavens. One was a big star, and it fell from my right to my left in the direction of Amarillo. It fell and it looked like a, a mighty comet, but it appeared like a tracer bullet. It left its trail behind it, and it fell very swiftly. Then in a few moments, there was a smaller star. fell parallel behind it, very slowly. It drifted down and fell in the same direction. Looked like they were about that far apart in the heavens, the two lines as they left. Then just before the sun came up over the horizon, the moon being shaped like this, looking at it on the left-hand shoulder of it for about 15 to 20 degrees around the circumference of it, light appeared just like the seven churches had been drawn in the book. I asked this gentleman riding with me, I said, Sir, are you a religious man? He said, Yes, I am. I said, Do you see that? He said, I've been watching it. He said, Do you know what that's a sign of? I said, It's a sign of the coming of the Lord, the moon to be turned to blood. I gave him very quickly the story of Malachi 4, Matthew 17 and 10, Luke 16 and 30, and all the scriptures that we've been taught, the Laodicean church age, and he began to cry. I mentioned to him that there was a prophet in the world, and he said, You don't have to convince me, I believe it. And when I told him concerning Brother Branham's accident, and I did not know the outcome of it, he said, I wish I could go with you and observe the things that you're going to be able to see this week. But he said, My household is not in order, and I need to get back now to set my house in order for the coming of the Lord. I think that should be our attitude all over the world. As I arrived at Clovis, New Mexico, he didn't even get out of the airplane. I got my luggage out. He took off and returned to set his house in order. I have called him and told him all the events that have taken place this week. We've known one another for less than an hour, but we speak the same thing concerning the coming of the Lord and the messenger of this day. I don't know what will be the outcome, but he's asked me if I would come to Albuquerque and tell the Mormon church that he is the minister over what he and I witnessed together. He has offered to come here and bear witness of what I tell you to be the truth, that we saw it ourselves. But there'll be no need for that, for the Mosley brothers from Phoenix saw the same thing that same morning as they were flying. Brother Welch Evans saw it driving his car from here to Amarillo. Brother Fred Softman saw it, and Brother Willard Collins saw it driving their automobiles that morning. They all came in telling the same thing. We knew that something was fixing to take place. As I arrived, I got a car in Clovis. There was one waiting for me. The sheriff wasn't there, but there was a rental car available. I drove to Friona. When I got to the city limits, there was a highway patrolman sitting there, and I stopped and asked him, and he escorted me to Lois and the babies. And just a few moments before, minutes before, Billy had taken his father in ambulance and transferred him from Friona to Amarillo, Texas, in a hospital by ambulance. I got Billy and the children, I got Lois and the children together. We went to the place of the wreckage. 
where they had stored the wrecked station wagon. We unloaded the personal belongings out of it into this rental car, locked it and parked it in the city. And then we took Billy's car and the children and Lois and went to Amarillo. I arrived at Amarillo a few minutes before 8 o'clock and walked in the hospital and Billy had been on the telephone for a few minutes he had not been with his father or else in that ambulance all night long. He was completely exhausted. He does not even remember me arriving. He was talking to Brother Fitzsingler from Ohio, I believe he's from Ohio. When I arrived, I took the phone away from Billy and led him to a seat and he collapsed. And he knew hardly anything for the next three hours. He was so exhausted. You can imagine the night he had spent. Near his father, seeing the condition of his body, his left arm, elbow mangled, his left ribs broken, his left pelvis broken in two places, and his left thigh broken in three places. This was the extent of his injuries as far as medical science gave us when we arrived. When I got there, Brother Branham was in the operating room. They were endeavoring to place his arm in traction and in place and put him on a bed comfortable to where he could regain strength enough that they could, and the swelling could go down so that he could, they could replace and repair these bones and put the cast on. Sister Branham was unconscious with a concussion and her left ankle was broken. Sarah, at that time, they told us she had four broken vertebrae in her back between her shoulders. She was in a private room. Her brother and sister Branham were in what they call an intensive care ward. They were there with around-the-clock special nurses, not hired by the family, but this was something that the hospital offers, and I recommended it with wonderful service. The ruling of the hospital was that someone can visit in this ward, each individual, five minutes every two hours. I was not there very long until a nurse came to the door and asked who I was, and I told her, and she said, would you like to see Reverend Branham and his wife? And I said, I would. I went in, and they put one of these gowns on me, and I went to see Sister Meaty, and she was unconscious, but I learned the extent of her injuries. She looked peaceful, but we did not know the extent of her head injury at that time. X-rays showed that it was a mild concussion, but you never know concerning blood clots. Then I went to see Brother Branham, and when I approached him, he looked as though he was unconscious. So I walked up to him. I couldn't say anything. His face was swollen. His arm was in traction. He was lying on a bed. They had his leg sandbagged so that he couldn't move it. And before I realized it, I began to sing on the wings of a snow-white dove. And God being my witness, when I began to sing it, he turned his head and opened his eyes and looked right straight at me and began to cry. The nurse said, he's responded to you, didn't he? And I said, yes, ma'am. He knows what I'm saying. And I began to say, Brother Branham, people around the world already know about it and everybody's praying for you. I couldn't help but cry. He'd smile and he gave me that look that only Brother Branham can give you. I said, Brother Branham, is everything going to be all right? And he shook his head, yes. I don't know what he meant, folks, but he shook his head, yes. He told Billy the same thing two days later. Billy asked him, Daddy, is everything going to be all right? And he smiled and shook his head, yes. I believe it's all right. 
I said, Brother Branham, is this the beginning of the end? He shook his head, yes. And I told him about the moon and it being blood, and they had a, a trachonomy. And he could not speak because of this breathing tube in his throat. It was not necessary for him to have it, but they had put it so that he could rest easier. And when I mentioned this of the moon to him, he raised his head and I know that he said something loud because the wind just gushed from his cube. I laid my hand over on him and I said, Brother Branham, that's all right. You'll tell us what it's all about later. And there was such a peace that came over me. An assurance. I've heard people talk about faith. But just like I said, if it had told me he was dead, I wouldn't have believed it. Not then. If it had told me he had no hopes, that's what they said, but I didn't believe it. This hospital staff never gave him any possibility. They were nice, and they were kind, and they were compassionate, but they never gave us any hope. They constantly said, he'll not live. But you know, there was a strange thing. As long as he was conscious, there was not a single individual died in that intensive care ward. Sunday, one man's heart stopped four times, and they called his family in, but he's alive today. People with coronary thrombosis said they had given minutes to live. Not a one died as long as he was conscious in that war. They brought them in and carried them out. Even the two boys who were in the automobile accident, they were on the critical list that was carried and put in the same ward. Neither of them died. Sister Meadie didn't die. She was in the same ward. And everybody that was present in that ward when he arrived left that ward before he died. This may be coincidence to some people, but to me it has a meaning. When I had an opportunity to ask Billy concerning the wreck, these four Spanish boys driving a, I believe it was a 60 model Chevrolet, with a left headlight out, came down the center of the road, weaving back and forth, with just one headlight on the right. Billy was preceding his father by about 50 or 60 yards, driving about 65 miles an hour in Texas, that's the speed limit. When Billy saw the car, he swerved to the right and missed it. The car swung to its right and back to its left directly in the path of Brother Branham and met him head on. The driver was a 17-year-old Spanish boy, a member of the Roman Catholic faith, and he was killed instantly. Billy saw the collision and he turned around and went back. When he got there, Lois went to Sister Branham and Billy went to his dad. His dad was laying out on the hood through the windshield, his legs pinned underneath him. He said, Dad, can you hear me? Just speak the word. And these were Brother Branham's words. Billy says he either said, I'm trying or I can't. One or the other. Billy will have to tell us what his daddy said. But he said, I can't remember whether he said, I'm trying or I can't. But about that time, Lois began to scream, Meaty's dead, Meaty's dead. Billy ran around to see if he could get some response out of her, and she didn't respond. He ran back around and said, Dad, can you hear me? Are you praying? And he said, Yes, I'm praying. He said, You'll have to pray for Mother. She's dead. He said, Where is she? And Brother Branham, laying on the hood in his condition, reached over and caught Sister Meaty with a hand and said, Lord, don't let her die. 
I bear witness that Billy and Lois both said it. I think this shows the man that we've all known. They removed Sister Branham and Sarah from the automobile and was able to transfer them to the little clinic immediately and then on to Amarillo. But it was 45 minutes or an hour before they could free Brother Branham. He was pinned in the accident. But we were there Sunday and we saw this. Then the second visit when we went in, which was two hours later, just to meet him with conscience and she recognized us. And once again, when I went to Brother Branham, he was smiling. We spoke to him this time a few things and I told him who all was there and who all had called and told him that Billy was resting and that Lois was okay and that the babies were okay and he was pleased. And I said, Brother Branham, what can I do now? And he closed his eyes and did his head like this. And I said, am I to pray? And he shook his head yes. Who was I to talk to God about his prophet? That's the way I felt. So I leaned over on the bed and I took him in my arms. I put my arms around him. And I prayed right in his ear. Now, Lord, you help me to say the words that he would say. I tried to get him to talk by putting my finger over the little hole, but he couldn't talk. His face was swollen, but it was Brother Brandon's face. Of course, my heart was sad, but there was an assurance in my heart. We were there, and in a little while, many people began to arrive. Sunday, his blood pressure, his temperature, his kidneys, and his respiration all remained normal. They thought his blood pressure was low. But when we obtained the readings from his physical examination here last October, we found his blood pressure to be normal, even under the circumstances. Then, Tuesday afternoon, late, the doctors called the family in. And they had just spoken with Dr. Hyde, the bone surgeon downstairs, and he had drawn a diagram, which we have, of the breaks in the elbow and in the leg. And he said, those bones have fitted themselves back together so perfectly, and this is the doctor's words, that as far as his bones are concerned, his, his condition is 10,000 times better than he was when he came in here. This is where the word comes that he was healed in his bones. We have this. I did not hear the doctor say it, but I do have the diagram that the doctor drew. Brother Borders gave it to me and I'm keeping it for Billy. They came and they told, the doc told Billy that they had noticed a puffing behind the pupil of his left eye, which to them they diagnosed it as a possible blood clot or blocked artery to the brain. And they wanted to run tests and if necessary to operate. They did operate. They opened his head on this side. They found no blood clot. They found no blocked artery. They said it was a puffing of the brain, swelling. I cannot say I'm not a doctor, but it appears to me that they made an improper diagnosis and they had to give us some kind of an answer. To me, there was no outside evidence of a blow on his head. 
And I had examined it thoroughly every time that I had visited him. And how many times had Brother Branham told us that he'd get it in the head? And it's all on the left side. The head, the arm, the ribs, the pelvis, and the thigh. During this operation, of course, naturally we began to feel some concern. But if I may confess to you, here is exactly my feelings. At times I felt literally condemned because I had shown such seemingly unconcernedness about the situation. But actually what it was, it was an assurance that was present all the while. I did not, not know whether to expect him to rise up and walk out of that war or whether it would take a while, but to me there was an assurance, and there is still an assurance. The only thing that has concerned me now is the insecurity of my own flesh, that the Spirit has peace about it. That's where the question really counts. I think Brother Neville put in these words, there are many questions that we don't have the answers to, but there's peace in here about it. Because we've been taught that God does as he pleases. As the family began to show this concern, we did too. Billy turned to me and he said, Perry, let's sing. I began to sing on the wings of a dove. When we got to the portion where it said, A sign from above, a strange thing happened. This was Tuesday evening. It had been cloudy over Amarillo all day. But just the sun, no area around it, but just the sun burst through those clouds and kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and just illuminated the room where we were. We began to sing, We'll walk in the light. There was a great blessing and an assurance, a sign from above. He came out of the operation. He was still living. Wednesday, the reports got bleaker. Wednesday night, I sat up at night. Many times in the wee hours of the morning, I'd get an opportunity to see Brother Branham. Sometimes there would be some sitting with me. They would be asleep. Others would be awake. But from four in the evening until about eight in the morning or nine, I remained there and answered the telephone. And I was able to see Brother Branham usually either two, six, or eight in the morning sometimes. But Thursday morning, the reports got bleaker. I left Thursday and slept as I normally did from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. Brother Borders answered the telephone. Thursday night, which would have been Friday morning at 4.17, the nurse came out the door quickly, and she said he had stopped breathing. I was sitting there reading the seven church ages, and for some reason, I was not the least bit excited. I was alone at the present time. Billy had gone for just a little while, and the others were out. I didn't feel an urge to get up and go get Billy. I just remained right where I was, and I said, Thank you, ma'am. I'll tell Billy when he returns. She put the respirator on him, and the machine began to breathe for Brother Branham at 4.17 a.m. Friday morning, December the 24th. At 9, I left and went to the motel and slept until 3. I returned, and when I returned, Billy and him left the waiting room and went downstairs to eat. And I was sitting in the waiting room alone, again, at 5.49. The nurse came out and said, Reverend Green, 
the doctor would like to see Billy. And I looked at her with a question mark on my face, and she shook her head like this. I went downstairs, and Billy was eating. I said, Billy, it seems that every time I come after you, you're eating. Or every time you get to eating, I come after you. I said, the doctor would like to see you. We went back upstairs, just he and I along, and he told Lois to save his dessert for him. He'd be back. When we got to the door this time, he turned and looked at me, and he said, Perry, this is it. He said, come go with me. I said, are you sure? He said, yes, I feel it. We walked inside, and he sat down in the consultation room, and the doctor came in, and we could see across the ward, and the curtains were drawn around Brother Branham. And he said, Perry, it's over. I said, well, I don't know for sure. The doctor walked in and he said, Mr. Branham, I regret to inform you, but your father expired at 549. Billy said, thank you, sir. The Lord, he said, I'm certain you folks did all you could. The doctor said, yes, we did. He said it was hopeless from the moment he came in here. The doctor said, me and my staff, the entire staff of the hospitals at your services if you need us. Billy said, thank you, sir. He turned to me and said, Perry, take Daddy home. And my job began. The brothers, when we walked back into the waiting room, were there. They were there. There were six or seven of them that wanted to go inside, stand around Brother Branham's bed and sing and pray. I guess there was 15 or 20, wasn't there, Brother Evans, in the room? And I had gotten special permission from the ward in the hospital to let them go in. And the brother said, Brother Perry, just call off our names and we'll go. And I just turned my back and began to call the names. And I don't remember who all of them were now. Brother Mann, Brother Hickerson, Brother Weber, men from the tabernacle, Richard Blair, Brother Orland Walker from Washington, Brother Evans, and Earl Martin from Wardell, Missouri. These seven brothers went in, and while they were singing, only believed. Around Brother Ram's bed, I didn't go in with them. I went and called the funeral director if it was necessary. I went in with Billy to inform Sister Branham. And while the brothers were singing, we noticed out the window a strange sign. The sun was setting, the moon was in the west, and this time the color was on this side. But the evening star was in a perfect line with those two. And instead of it just being a star, it looked to me like it was whirling and had a ray of light, a moon on each side of it, going around like this. But it made a ray of light which pointed directly in opposite directions, one pointing toward the moon and the sun. I believe that, that this moment was recorded in the heavens, these signs. I believe we'll read about them in weeks to come in magazines. I've already read one article concerning this in the newspaper. The strange time that these celestial bodies were lined up. And to me, this gave me a peace. We showed this to Sister Meeting. We moved over in the bed next to the window and she saw it. We showed it to Sarah. Billy and Lois still rejoiced that they saw it. 
many saw it that were there that day. The hospital staff went to the windows and they even looked at it. The hospital staff has asked me if I would send them copies of Brother Branham's life story. They said we have had the strangest feeling since Reverend Branham has been in this hospital. They were as nice to us as a crowd of people as you could ever ask anybody to be. They were even so impressed with a brother like Ben Bryant that they gave him the pillow on which Brother Branham had laid those days he was in the hospital. Brother Bryant cherishes it dearly today. The next day was Christmas Day. I was unable to go to bed that night. It was my time to stay up, but I called as many as I could remember that I had promised I would call. Here are the remains of Brother Branham as I could on the airplane. And I sincerely prayed this prayer. I said, God, every time before I've ever ridden an airplane, I've always said, Lord, get me there safe. But I said, today, I want you to take us both in a barrel of fire. It would have been my pleasure to go through that door in that way. When we arrived at St. Louis, I asked them to give him a private cart. They did. We had a six-hour layover. We placed that cart inside the building where it was warm, and I sat with him those six hours, and that's when I got all my crying done. We had to wait that long because it was that long before another airplane went to Louisville, Kentucky that would had a hatch big enough to carry it. When we arrived in Louisville, Kentucky, many of his brothers and his sister were there, several of brothers from the church. The airport co cooperated with us marvelously. They brought one of these little trucks around that's got one of these ramps on it. They took him out of the airplane and put him on this ramp and raised it just as high as it could and drove slowly around the terminal. Drove right up to the hearse, put his body in the hearse. I rode with it to the funeral home. Upon arriving at the funeral home, these people had preceded us there. And I asked the funeral director if he would mind letting the brothers take Brother Branham's remains out of the hearse. Brother Ben Bryant, that I specifically remember, was there. He and Brother Lee Vale and others lifted Brother Branham's remains in this casket in which we had shipped him. And we placed it in the funeral home. The next morning I went to service and I gave the church their report up to that time. Billy and the family arrived the next evening, Sunday evening, about 8.30 by private plane. They came in two Aero Commander planes with the two stretchers. When they landed at the airport, they went immediately to the hospital. I rented a car and got their luggage, went to the hospital, and then we all went to the funeral home together. They viewed him for the first time, and Brother Branham did not look like himself. If he had, I don't think I could have stood it. He looked much younger, much thinner. God knows how to comfort our hearts in ways we don't know. But if Brother Branham's remains had looked like this, I don't think I could have stood it. And it was comfort to me to be able to look upon that remains that were there and it not resemble him as we had known him. Now, after man seems that Brother Branham is hunting, or he's in Jeffersonville.
or he's over at the house or he's up in the Sabino Canyon somewhere I haven't seen him well I've just seen something that we know was a, an earthly tabernacle but I believe he's here how many times have you told us that there's television waves in this room we just had a set to receive them I believe he told Brother and Sister Evans that their son knew they were there and they were having this that he's not gone he's here and I feel his presence and next Sunday the Lord willing I'll tell you how I felt his presence for two years and I still feel the same way even though that medical science has told us as far as this life he's expired but I believe he's been resurrected and I believe that when it comes that time for the great resurrection morning when the dead in Christ shall rise that our brother Brandon will be leading the way the next two days Monday and what it was Monday and Tuesday Billy stood at the head of his father's casket with his daddy's Bible and greeted everyone that came he had always led the people to his father and he felt his father would want him to do the same this time and he stood there I don't know how he did it but he stood there we were busy Men like Brother Earl Roberts, Demas Shakarian, Tommy Osborne, and others were phoning, sending us wires, making their arrangements. Billy had asked us to see that they were all made to be taken care of when they arrived. Over 3,000 people. There were over 3,000 signatures. Some of them were signed, Mr. and Mrs. and children. 3,000 signatures signed on the guest book. They came by Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, the day of the funeral, the church was filled by 1045. 1,500 people or more were gathered by 12 o'clock. By the time the funeral came, the police and the fire department and the television station estimated approximately 2,500. We have copies of these newspapers. You folks would like any of them. We have, I think, about 1,500 left. We'd be happy to give you some of them. They'll be here at the church Wednesday night, the Lord willing. We conducted the funeral service that you folks heard this morning on tape. And about four o'clock when we walked outside the church, somebody called from West Virginia. And my father answered the phone and they said, Would you have the folks at the tabernacle look at the sun? And we all began to look at the sun outside. And I don't have to tell you an untruth about this. We called here, we called Beaumont, we called Chicago, we called New York. We had people all over America look at it. There was something happened to the sun at 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon at the end of his funeral. Anybody see it just here tonight? It appeared to me that it was changing colors. It turned different colors. I saw it. It looked to me like one time it was green. It was a purple. It was an amber color. Then it turned a blue. And it seemed like it was just boiling and there was a ring around it. I believe in the very near future... We shall read articles concerning these things. Now then, this will not be on my tape. Maybe it should be. Would somebody turn it over for me? All right, that's fine. Just you put it on. The denominational world tonight is saying he saved others himself. He could not save. His critics are saying this. He saved others himself. He could not save. But how many times has Brother Brown told us 
if they persecuted Jesus, how much more will we be persecuted? They said this of Jesus himself when he was here. So why shouldn't they say it now? It makes him no less. But there have been many who have said, what about the unanswered questions? What about the things that have been spoken that have not come to pass? I am not saying that this is the correct attitude, but I can bear witness of this. At the last Sunday morning that Brother Brandon was present in service here, as I stood in this pulpit and I preached that morning, he was sitting about where Brother Northcomb is sitting. And several times during the service I would look and there was thoughts concerning the Son of Man doctrine that I looked and said, is that it? This was upon my heart. And after service that morning, Brother Branham came down front here and Brother Roberson was standing and you bear witness. He said, Brother Perry, he said, you know in Psalms 22, when David says, my God, my God, he said, do you know who that was talking? He said, that was David the king the mouthpiece for Jesus Christ. He said, that was not David. That was Jesus. He said, there are many things that are spoken to the prophets that are spoken in the first person that people think that it's being spoken concerning the individual saying them, but it's not him. He's a mouthpiece for God. He said, you always remember that I'm a Kentuckian, but I'm a prophet. I lie not to you. I do not have to lie with this. It's too late now. But he said, Do you know also when David says, My own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me? Jesus came along in John 13 and 8 and said that the scripture might be fulfilled. My own friend has lifted up his heel against me. David spoke those things years before Jesus Christ fulfilled them. If this man, which we are speaking of tonight, was a prophet, he would speak many things in the first person that would appear to apply to him. But he could speak about Jesus himself. I believe that everything that he has spoken will come to pass. But just as Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke, the things that the prophets would say, these things of deliverance, and they would endeavor to put them in their own lives like Isaiah said unto us a child is born unto us a son is given he spoke it in the present but it happened 700 years later in Isaiah 7 and 14 he said the Lord himself shall give you a sign a virgin shall conceive but it happened 700 years later just so that you might understand what I am projecting here Brother Branham stood in Cairo, Egypt. He was fixing to go to the Holy Land. The Spirit of the Lord stared him out behind the hangar and said, It's not yet time for thee to go. How many times has he told us this? And how many times has he also said the Spirit of Elijah must appear five times? There's to be an Elijah to the Jews. That'll be the time that it's for him to go. You see it? How many times has he told us that it's possible for the work to be cut short? 
Why? Because of the hardness of the heart. When we see these things, let us not be guilty of saying, now if we have a problem, where will we go? Brother Branham always told us, if any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. We haven't practiced it. Now we'll have to rely on one another. Won't we? Now we'll have to serve one another. Now we'll have to fit together as the bride is supposed to join, fitly join together. The little finger, not saying he doesn't need the little toe. But as long as we had him, why everybody felt they could be completely independent of everybody else in the bride of Christ. Well, who are you? I know him. But this is not according to the word that he taught us. Now that we need one another, We'll need one another even more so as that day approaches. But as I mentioned this morning, there's something very, very strange concerning him not being committed to the earth. It is not impossible for God to get raised him from the dead. In order that the first pool could not be imitated, as he has said also. And if he says this, I shall be the first to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I would remind you of this. Jesus himself told the rich man, though one rise from the dead, they would not get believed. Who would have influenced if he would arise from the dead? Only us believers. The other people would not believe it anyway. Do we need him to be raised from the dead to believe the message he taught us to be thus saith the Lord? If there is, shame on your face. But if what you have seen and heard bears witness in your heart that it's thus saith the Lord. You start living. And loving one another as he loved us. Folks, in our generation, we have had an example. And there will certainly be no excuse on Judgment Day for any of us. For we have heard, we have seen, we have felt, and we have believed. That has come to pass. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have heard the words that we have spoken. You know the day by day account that we have given of the events that we have borne witness of. You know that we lie not, as we saw it. We have endeavored to speak it to these people. Not adding to or taking away from. We have also lied not concerning the things that we were told concerning him being a mouthpiece of God. Speaking things in the first person, as though it were him. Would you come now, Lord Jesus, and give peace and comfort to every heart that's present? And may we walk in adoration and love together. And when you desire to manifest yourself unto us in any method that is scriptural, let us be ready and willing to accept it. For we ask it in Christ's name now. Amen. I don't expect it to affect you as it affects me, but 
I lived it and it reminds me of some very serious, precious moments in my life. But I'm glad that I have it as a, as a record so that we can be reminded of what really happened. May God bless you and uh, this has been a week to recall and remember the things that God has given us through the life and ministry of Brother Branham. We'll stand and sing, Thank You, Lord, for Saving My Soul. Those of you that would like to uh, know more about some of the things we've said and done, we have literature in our office that's uh, available to you. Have Brother Brown's life story about three or four different people. We appreciate you having some of it to read with. There will be service here in the Tabernacle Wednesday night, but we're willing at 7.30. You've only got one more week this year to serve the Lord, so make it count for him, will you? Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul.